Hello listeners, this is Matt from Uncanny Treks, and I want to take a moment to tell you about our brand new Patreon at patreon.com slash uncannytreks. On our Patreon, we offer lots of exclusive content in multiple tiers, including access to our brand new Patreon-exclusive podcast, X-Men 92 vs. Young Justice. On this podcast, we follow the same format as B5 vs. DS9, but with an entirely new focus on reliving the nostalgia of 90s X-Men animated series and comparing it to the fast-paced action of Young Justice. Both of these animated series have recently been renewed for new seasons, so we felt it was a great time to return to these two comic book-based properties. If you're interested in subscribing, please visit us at patreon.com slash uncannytreks, and you can always reach out to us on Twitter at uncannytreks. Enjoy the show, and as always... Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Galaxy's Greatest Podcast about the two great 90s space station shows, Babylon 5 versus DS9. I'm Bob in Cascadia. That is Matt in the Southland. We are part of Uncanny Treks. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing pretty well, Bob. Uh, these episodes... Eh, visitor made me cry a little bit. I'm going to be honest. Uh, always brings That's a tear to my eye. weak and soft, Matt. Weak and soft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pro- That's probably true. Let's, let's get into these episodes, Bob. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about uh, Season 3, Episode 2 of Babylon 5, Convictions, which originally aired on November 13th of 95. And then we're talking about Visitor, uh, Season 4, Episode 3 of DS9, which originally aired on the 9th of October 95. You want to walk us through the A-plot on uh, good old Convictions there, Matt? Yeah, in Convictions, we have a Mad Bombers on the station. It brings Malari closer to Lanier. After Lanier saves Malori's life, it brings Ivanova closer to an order of monks who want to live in Down Below. And Malori, who has terrible luck to be in the path of two different bombs, closer to Jakar, after both are stuck in an elevator after the blast. Yeah, yeah. And then in the opening, we have a good old Deputy Allen deciding to be a prick and not sharing his blessing with the Drazi missionaries. Yeah, he's a real douche about it, and then he points them to that uh, plant saying that it was part of the whole, uh, you know, Kosh revealing himself. But I do see that he's still wearing that armband from the Night Watch, so we haven't abandoned the Night Watch plot yet. Oh, no, no, the Night Watch is still here. The Night Watch is still here. <laughs> that does seem to be mostly what Alan and Garibaldi do on the show, is that they're just kind of vaguely pricks to visitors. That mostly seems to be their job. Yeah, but you would think, you know, you'd want to be nicer to the people coming on B5, but I don't know. It's, a... it's cop mindset. Yeah, exactly, and you know these guys are just kind of being missionaries or wanting to, or more like tourists in a sense. But I think that I don't know if B five was originally meant to be that kind of station. Yeah, yeah, and then I wanted to ask: Did you notice that the camera work was getting a lot more daring this season? Oh yeah, it's really weird. Uh, it don't, but don't worry though, because I did read about it in the lurker notes. Uh, JMS makes it very clear that uh, he did it on purpose. And he's like so amazed by the CGI he used. He explains in like full detail how he created every single explosion shot, which, I mean, for 1995, I'm like, 
there were a lot of explosions taking place. You probably didn't need to use CGI for that, but whatever. Yeah, I, well, I would distinguish the CGI from the camera work. The CGI is really bad. I mean, it's better than it was, but it's still really bad. Yeah. I think even I, by the standards of the times, it's probably less bad, but still a little questionable, I would say. Whereas, like, yeah, you just have, like, the, the kind of movements of the camera and the placements of the camera and then some of the editing techniques to go between camera shots. is just It feels a lot more experimental. Like, the end of uh, the season premiere that we talked about last time, there's a kind of aerial pan out on... Um, on Delenn as she's finally explaining uh, the shadows to Franklin, uh, who's been in Medbay the whole time. And that was kind of interesting. And then here, like you have the camera set beneath the stairs when Ivanova and Garibaldi are having an opening conversation. So it's like following them under the stairs. And then you got some really interesting like fades during the montage of the Mad Bomber investigation. So um, it's, I don't know, it's just, it was getting a lot more creative. I kind of assumed it might be a different uh, director of photography, but uh, it's the same guy uh, who, ironically enough, is the kind of jerk who's laughing at Lanier's bone. Uh, the guy's name is uh, John Finn. John Flynn. Flynn. Oh, sorry, John Flynn. Yeah, yeah. He, but apparently he did the. He was the DP for basically every Babylon Five episode, maybe like five episodes or so. He didn't do it, uh, but basically all of it. Yeah. But did you catch on, though, that Lanier lies to that dude about having a virus? Yeah, I, I did. I did. So you you think that Lanier was also lying when he said that Minbari don't lie? I, I think he was telling the truth, but that this just points to Lanier's corruption from living among us annoying humans. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Lanier's claim from earlier was complete bullshit. I think that Minbari can lie just fine. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a stupid idea that Minbari don't lie, but I, I take it at face value. I just think Lanier is, yeah, you know, he's he's learned how annoying human beings can be, and he's having to adapt to it. Uh, speaking of adapting, I, I really did enjoy Brother Theo bartering his and his Order of Monks way onto the station with Ivanova. And it was just a really kind of interesting scene. And, you know, like, I'm an atheist, but I appreciate how Theo has, like, a kind of different temporal orientation than us lay people he's you know envisioning a common project for the monks where they're going to collect all the alien names for god and that would take 40 or 50 years so it's just kind of interesting like that the way that you know being in a monastery would like kind of change your sense of time in a way yeah and i'm totally okay with these guys like outlook and their mission like they, they want to learn how others view and understand the creator it fits in with the idea of the different way the races viewed kosh as an angel and it kind of even takes you all the way back to season one with the Parliament of Dreams episode. Same kind yeah. of theme. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. You could you could almost see um, good old Sinclair liking Brother Theo a lot more than Sheridan might. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting stuff. And yeah, it, it is part of that very kind of 90s, like, new age, all religion or true vibe uh, you get from Babylon 5. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so apparently the actor who plays Theo is Louis uh, Turin, correct? Yeah, yeah. Did you recognize him? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know this, Bob. But I thought Draw was the same actor in that season two episode as yeah, he was in I, season one. <laughs> yeah, I I did too. I did too. I didn't realize that because yeah, Draw shows up in the two parter in season one, and then he shows up again with the Great Machine in season two, and. 
they recast him, which actually does maybe explain kind of the strange way they handled introducing Drawl to Sheridan. Yeah, they made that in-universe excuse of the great machine making him younger, but I just thought yeah. he had shaved. Like that was—I remember the episode. I was like, okay, he just shaved his beard, but it's a whole different dude. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, that I, yeah, I really don't know what the thinking is behind recasting draw. I assume it was just Louis Turin wasn't available, no. and so they cast it, and then he—they liked him, and he was available again, and so they cast him as Brother Theo. That's, that's what I assume, but yeah, it's it's interesting. I I didn't recognize him either. I I just thought like Louis Torino will be in, in a few other episodes as Brother Theo, um, some good episodes actually. And I just thought it I was you know he's an interesting character and I like the performance. I was just trying to figure out what else he'd been in, and yeah, lo and behold, the other thing he'd been in was Babylon Five. One of my favorite little cutaways or scenes in this episode is when Jakar is accusing Malari of planting the bombs to Garibaldi. And then it cuts to a scene of Malari accusing Jakar of planting the bombs to Sheridan. I thought that was a, that was a good uh, good a duality there. It, was fun. it really it really felt like the show was almost back in season one, right? Yes. Uh-huh. We kind of we kind of gotten out of the status quo because so much stuff has happened to um, the Narn homeworld and to Jakar personally. But this kind of felt like a way to get back to those kind of you know, uh, hijinky season one plots of both Jakar and Malari are angry about something. I, I rather enjoyed that too. Yeah, it's like, but the stakes were like way higher. That's the only difference. I mean, mm-hmm. they're still acting the same way, but the stakes have increased. Yeah, and it, it does remind you that Jakar, you know, I've I've noted that Jakar feels like a street preacher sometimes this season, mm-hmm. but like he had that quality uh, early in the show too. Like in season one, there's that, weird episode where he's like basically trying to incite like an alien riot (laughs) yeah that was i forgot about that episode that was a good episode yeah 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 i mean i i i don't think this i want to make clear but it's like you get the feeling that like sometimes the show is that like means jakar to kind of be like an unflattering portrayal of like jesse jackson or al sharpton yeah yeah i can see it kind of amusing um, did you recognize the guy who was playing another one of Garibaldi's men? Uh, the guy's name is, I believe, Kerry uh, Hiroki Tagawa. I, I had no clue who that guy was. I he, he looked familiar to me. I couldn't definitively place him, but he's been in a lot of stuff. It's just, you know, a character actor who's been all over. Uh, most notably, you might remember him for being the voice of Sinzu in a Batman video game from, I think, the early odds. Yeah, that game was like a really great beat 'em up type game. Like you just went around as you could play as you actually get to play as one of four char- four characters. You get to play as Batgirl, Batman, Nightwing, or Robin, uh, which is what they're redoing now with this, the, mo- the most recent Arkham game they're going to re- they're going to release. I think next year has the exact okay. same mechanic. <laughs> so it's like it's like twenty two years later, and they're like boom or same idea. Uh, but the only is thing about him, me, though, just one thing to insert: is it just me, or would it be more interesting to have a like? You don't need Nightwing and Robin; like a different character rather than one of them would be more interesting. Uh, the only real, the, the only real reason you would want Nightwing is because he uses those. Uh, I think they're called a, a, no, a scream of sticks or uh, whatever. The sticks. The sticks. That's okay. what. That's the way they make him different. And then Robin is more of a. Uh, he'll have a staff, or he'll. Like, I know with uh, Damian Wayne, they'll have to give him a sword. 
So, okay, okay. That's that. That's yeah. really the main difference when it comes to mechanics. Um, I mean, not not to sound like a woke culture warrior, although I sometimes am. But I just I think it'd be kind of be cooler if you had like Huntress or Batwoman instead of one of Oh yeah, one of yeah. or Robin. I agree, but they're not as popular and not as many people know about them. So, I will say I, this I though: mean, Bat, the, Batwoman's got a show. Yeah, but eh, it's not doing too well though. All right, like it's. <laughs> I mean, isn't it still going at least? I I don't I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I have no idea. You know how I am with Batman. I know I try to know like a little bit of everything. So, um, I mean, there's just no. I, I I just don't believe it's possible to make a good superhero show with like 20 episodes a year. Right. But yeah, the only thing about that villain though was he's like just a complete Asian stereotype and just the yeah, embo- yeah. embodiment of Sun Tzu. So it's like. Eh, not, not very memorable. He didn't even take off. Like usually, they'll take characters from you know these yeah. other media and bring them into the comics. He he didn't well, make the, it. The reason I remember it is because like the advertisements in the comics at the time like so heavily stressed that he was a new villain, and I I want to say that they stressed that he was created by Jim Lee. I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure they were stressing. That is correct. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that, but that is correct. Yes, yeah, I remember the yeah. ads. Yeah, which is kind of ironic. I mean, it doesn't make him not an anti-Asian stereotype, yeah. <laughs> Korean American, but it's it's still kind of yeah, still kind of funny. It, it was a weird choice. To, yeah, I mean. yeah. Um, I guess we should have done this transition a little earlier, but I since we were talking about Jakar a minute ago, but I really did enjoy Jakar's like mad delight that he gets to watch Malari die. It's very very well played, very funny. Yeah, Jakar. Uh, it's also brilliant that Jakar refuses to kill Malori based on the terms of the treaty and that 500 normal die if he's murdered. It's like mm-hmm. uh, Malori kind of a, uh, if, if he were to die here, it's going to be a much slower death than had Jakar killed him in that two hours where Malori was knocked out in the elevator. Yeah. Yeah. So he gets to watch him suffer and he's mm-hmm. not liable under the terms of the treaty. Very, very it. nice. Very nice. I will also say that the Mad Bombers uh, talk about boom did put me in mind of Ivanova's great line about no boom today, always boom tomorrow. Yeah, I just want to take this moment to uh, point out how bad B5 security is, Bob. Just, <laughs> I mean, there, there's too much boom on Babylon 5 for me. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I mean, like, they've already got fascists on the B5 security force, you know, a.k.a. Uh, Deputy Allen. I... I don't know if I want a more effective uh, Babylon Five security force. That might go dark places. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty it's it's, it's a rough rough group of people. I, I don't I don't think they're very effective. I, just just putting it that way. It's a hard job, man. Uh, you know, every 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 episode, some somebody evil is coming from off station or is revealed to have been on station for you know quite some time, and uh, you know it's trying to really mess stuff up. It's a hard job. Yeah, and I mean, going so far as to take a set a bomb within like the core of the station is, is seems like somebody would have said something or noticed that. <laughs> hey, man, he's the mad bomber. What bombs at midnight? <laughs> so, part of this whole thing, though, is that because Lanier saved Malari from the mm-hmm. uh, explosion at the beginning of the episode, Malari is now indebted to Lanier. Mm-hmm. All right. Will this have an impact on like Membari relations with the Centauri in future episodes? Or are we just gonna not even go back to this? Um, it's hard for me to remember, but I think it does have an impact on Malari personally. But I I don't think it has an impact on 
Membari Centauri relations. Because I know Delenn, I don't think Delenn is even like wants anything to do with Malori. No, no, she doesn't. She doesn't. Um, not at least not at this point. Yeah. Okay. And I mean that that is one of like the challenges of the show is how to like keep Malari a kind of charming, fun part of the cast after you know he's responsible for the awful things the Centauri are doing. Yeah. All right, so with that sad note, Bob, let's move on to a, a much more uh, tear-inducing episode of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to walk us through the uh, plot of uh, good old The Visitor? A Visitor. In the A-plot, old man Jake Sisko, played by the great Tony Todd, tells a young fan who de- ventures deep into the bayou to find him how he lost his father to a wormhole anomaly 50 years ago. Yeah, that's the secret with a long sentence, Matt. You always just got to keep reading. If you stop for the gap, you're lost. (laughs) Bob, I work with elementary school students. (laughs) They have to take breaths. I mean, I I would say that they're better able to read without a gap than uh, adults. (laughs) You got to give them Faulkner and Proust at an early age where they can fully get through the sentence. All right. So with the opening of this episode, Bob, we have the the this shot of like a window and some like things we've seen from DS9 on Cisco's desk. And the opening really reminded me of season 1 Necessary Evil. Yeah, yeah, that was our kind of film noir episode with Quark and Odo from season 1, I think. And yeah, you get the same vibes, although it's a little different cuz here like the the vibes are supposed to be a little more like sad and a little more gothic-y where the vibes in uh, that, that season one episode, I think are supposed to be a little more noir and a little more melodramatic, but yeah, it, it was, it did immediately put me in the same frame. Yeah. And I, I thought the whole thing was great except for that Cisco Jake photo was kind of cheesy. It looked like a cast <laughs> photo and I'm pretty sure it was taken the same day the episode was shot because Jake's wearing the same <laughs> outfit. <laughs> yeah yeah i i I will say i really enjoyed uh jake's kind of friendly but a little condescending uh uh, remarks to the fan especially uh when she tells uh him that he's her favorite author he just replies you should read more which that's probably a good response to anybody who makes over overly broad claims about you know something being their favorite so there are no absolutes bob right there's always. Uh, I mean, there is an absolute. There is an absolute, and that absolute is you should read more. <laughs> there's always something better out there. You're right. Uh, I don't know if there's something better out there, but there's a lot of other stuff out there that might provincialize your current obsession. No. Might alter your opinion. Very good. No, no, just just give it context and perspective, and maybe provincialization. You're just using a lot of bigger words t- to change what I said. <laughs> Way to go! Yeah. So can I uh, can I make my uh, big complaint about this episode? Go right ahead, Bob. Look, I love my father. I'm very glad and very lucky that both my parents are still alive and relatively healthy while I'm in my 30s. But I really don't think your father dying when you're 18 is the worst thing that can happen to you. Hey, Bob. I mean, Jake lost his mother really early on. And then he lost his father, so there's lots of trauma there, and it doesn't. Yeah, it do- but you're 18. 
Yeah, but it, but it also doesn't help, Bob, that Cisco keeps showing up to remind him that his father is technically still alive. So, like, yeah, without but... that piece, I think he probably would have continued on with writing and not as be as obsessed with making sure he's trying to save his father. I disagree because he's kind of obsessed even before Cisco returns. Like he's he stays on the station for a long time before Cisco first shows up, like at least a year. And it's just like, bro, what are you even doing here? Your dad's gone. Go well, to that's, a, that's like a grieving period. He's he's grieving. Yeah, but like moping around in the same setting, like that's not going to get the grief better. And, like, I, I agree that, like, the fact that you have, like, the kind of, like, sci-fi ghost story premise of Cisco keeps appearing to him, obviously that does make it worse and does, like, reignite it and does do some explanation. But also, like, clearly the show is just supposed to be about, like, you know, it's an allegory for grief and for losing your father. And it's just, like, on that level, I don't really like it because, like, you need to get over that stuff, man. Like, <laughs> Oh, Bob. <laughs> like, literally, he, he changes his whole life. He, he abandons his career. He, he, he loses his wife. All in, a, all in a, you know, what seems to be a pretty futile attempt to save his dad uh, that his dad doesn't even want. Like, that he repeatedly well, tells him not to do. And then the, the, I mean, if you really want to get dark with it, like, Jake resets the entire timeline to save one man. Like, that's, it's really ethically dubious. Bob, but that's the whole, like, Cisco, Ben even says, tells Jake, like, he didn't want him to stop writing. Like, he didn't want him to give up yeah. his family. So, like, he, Ben agrees with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I know. But that's the whole point of it. I mean, that's the whole dichotomy of it. That's the whole point. Is that Jake wants to save Ben, but then Ben really doesn't necessarily want to be saved. He wants Jake to live his life. Yeah. That's what makes it powerful. Eh, I don't think it makes <laughs> it powerful. I just think it it makes it kind of pathetic and sad. Even though, again, you know, it's a really good acting from both Tony Todd and Avery Brooks, but it's just Jeez. kind of pathetic and sad. Like, uh, I, I'm I, sorry. We're gonna have to agree to disagree on this one, Bob. <laughs> eh. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. And mo most people agree it's one of the better episodes uh, ever of Star Trek, so... Eh. I'll say something that you'll like, Matt. Most people are wrong. <laughs> most people need to read more. How about that? That's probably true. I'm sure if we had the the same uh, literary background that you have, Bob, we could we would be less uh, teary-eyed during this episode. I don't even think this has really... Ha I was just being a dick. I don't think it has to do with that I've read more. I just think it... Well, you've been exposed to more, so you're 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 more critical when you see, uh, uh, you know, I guess poor writing. I don't. I don't think it's like poor writing exactly. I just think it's excessively like maudlin and like I just. I don't think the episode fully realizes how like depressing it makes Jake's character. <laughs> like and, and I'm not saying that because I don't want it to I don't want things to be depressing right but I, I just don't think they fully grasp like how insane it is to fully surrender your life and also irrevocably alter the timeline 
for someone who doesn't even want you to do it. I will admit this, Bob, that it is okay. After he meets Cisco, after Cisco meets his wife and that kind of stuff. And that scene, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Where he talks and he says he wants grandkids and all this stuff. That is, I see where you're talking about. That's where it kind of jumps a little bit to this more depressing piece you're talking about. You, you keep focusing on Jake staying on the station. I get that. That, to me, I understand. It's grieving. He wants to be around the familiar people he's been with for several years. Well, and the, the, re- the real answer is probably just, well, we, we got this cast. We're goddamn going to use them. Well, well, that's yeah, that's what it boiled down to. They weren't just going to like send him home to you know be with Grandpa. Yeah, yeah. I guess to tra- change the subject, or, and it, is, it does feel a little weird that you don't see the granddad in this episode. Although, I mean, they do mention him. Yeah. Um, but to switch the topic a little, it is kind of interesting this this uh, like astro political future we get uh, from Cisco's disappearance that in some ways is like more dark than the main timeline, right? Because we see the Klingons occupy DS Nine, we see the Bajorans are forced to ally with the Cardassians to stop the Klingons. But on the other hand, actually doesn't seem so bad. Like it seems like the Dominion has never invaded it seems like they're still just out in the gamma quadrant that they never annex cardassia and so we kind of avoid any disaster like the dominion war and the impression i got which might be wrong but the impression i got later towards the episode is, is it seems like things have settled down right like it seems like klingon and federation tensions have like eventually subsided yeah, I mean, we only see it for a little while, though, but it does seem calmer, and you're right. I, I think that maybe Jake did screw up the timeline enough to where there could have been a better future, maybe. Yeah, yeah, or at least, like, a different one without a war. Right. And it, it's also, I mean, it, it kind of makes Jake a little dubious, but it also a little, maybe a little unintentionally, makes Cisco a little dubious. Like, if this is the world of the show without your main protagonist <laughs> compared to the world you actually got, it's like, huh. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to, like, overstress my criticism here, but it's, it's just very interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, we don't know 100% everything that happened, but, you know. Yeah, like, that's true. That's yeah, true. So there could have been terrible things that happened on the Bajoran homeworld Cardassia, with Cardassia and with Klingons. I, I don't know. I yeah, did kind of want to yeah. see, like, Klingon occupied DS9, like the actual interior yeah, of the station. Yeah, even if it was just a couple of shots of Klingons yeah, walking but, around the station, that would right. be fun. I wanted to move. I want to talk about one other thing too. Like this, and this, the more I've thought about it, the more I realize that it probably has to do with where our technology is now. But watching old Dax and Bashir, and then even some of Jake's, like the makeup was not as convincing. But I think it was because I'm watching it on a huge HD TV. Oh yeah, that or, yeah, or four, really a four K TV at this point, I think. So I it's don't really, know, like, it's really true that you can have a TV that's too good. Yeah, it's really hard to like look at them because you could see the makeup, which a lot of times on DS Nine I don't see it as much because uh, they're everything seemed pretty smooth. But with the old Dax and Bashir, it was it looked weird. Like it didn't look like old people. It looked like masks. Or they, you know what I mean? Like yeah, they, yeah. I felt it wasn't done. It was an unusual miss on their makeup department's part, but usually yeah. they're spot on. Yeah, no, that is that is a good point. That is a good point. A couple, there are a couple little things I liked. Um, I do like. I mean, it's pretty obvious in some sense, but I do like that this episode shows Kira taking over for Cisco, which foreshadows what happens in the novels after the show. Um, and honestly, like it's. Uh, it's a lot of similarity to the uh, 
to the novels in the sense that, you know, we also have this episode foreshadowing Cisco's disappearance at the end of the series. And so, you know, you, you were asking like, does Jake um, pursue Cisco? And I've only read a few of the novels, so I can't, I don't have a full answer, but I think there are a couple like Jake centric novels where he's looking for his father. Okay. So, I mean, it fits the salt, the same theme. It's the yeah. The although same. my impression is, is it's not like as kind of like sad and all consuming a search as this. Uh, so maybe I'm wrong it, about that, but that's yeah. my impression. That makes sense. So, um, yeah. anything else you noticed? I really enjoyed the kind of callback to the Battle of Wolf 359 when Jake is leaving the station. Like, the shot of the shuttle pulling away looks a lot like the shot of the shuttle pulling away from the Saratoga when Jake and Ben are abandoning ship. Yeah, that's the only other time we've ever seen that kind of shot in DS9 was in the first uh, episode. Yeah. With the, the, yeah. With, the, with the shuttle pulling away like that. Because yeah. I remember yeah. we talked about it in our, in our initial episode. Of, yeah, uh, that that one sticks with me. It st- stuck with me pretty hard, just because I really, you know, I had the emissary on um, VHS, and so I watched it several times. So that yeah. that's really kind of embedded in my mind. There is that kind of fun synchronicity too of both the DS9 episode and the Babylon Five episode this week. They would hinge on someone knocking someone else out of the way of something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, it's pretty common, but yeah. Makes sense. What do you think about the happy ending for both Quark and Morn in this timeline? Oh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Uh, Quark gets a moon. Uh, Morn takes over Quarks and runs it for Klingons. That's, that seems like a quite an enjoyable thing for both of them. It's kind of uh, ironic, too, the way that the Klingons treated Morn in the last episode. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten <laughs> about that. But, yeah, they were giving him a hard time, asking him the questions we all want to know the yeah. answer to. What is he doing on station? Do you find the gag where they talk about Morn never shutting up to be funny at all? Or is there something wrong um, with me? I don't find it funny. I, I don't I don't dislike it, but I don't really... I wouldn't go so far as to say I find it funny. Okay. Because it, it, every time I hear it, I'm just like, yeah, I just kind of roll my eyes. It's one of them. Uh, what did you think of our uh, first look at Captain Nog in this timeline? Eh, I'm not, like... I don't dislike Nog like I like his, like I dislike his father, but he doesn't do that much for me as a character, so. I really hope this time travel thing continues on so that we see Cisco and Picard season two, so that, Bob, we can get Cisco season one coming to Paramount Plus. <laughs> I want to see this I, timeline. <laughs> I get the impression, and this is off only like vaguely remembered things people have said over the past few years, so it might not be right. But I get the impression that, like, you might could get Avery Brooks back for, like, guest appearances. I get the impression, though, you couldn't get him back for a whole show. Yeah. Well, um, poor Avery which is Come on, Avery yeah. Brooks. And we we do have the blow, uh, a mild, mild spoiler. We, we saw, the week we were recording this, we saw uh, Picard Season 2, Episode 4, and we learn out sort of who the watcher is, and it's not Cisco. So, yeah. um, you know, so, I mean, that doesn't mean we won't get some sort of Cisco appearance in Picard season two. But at least to this point, uh, it's not he's not the watcher, which was probably I guess the most likely way it could have been. 
to hear more about that episode, check it out. Yeah, so, yeah. All right. So let me just say overall, Bob, I love this episode. I watched it with my wife Heather in the room while she did like stuff on her phone, like most wives do. And I could tell she was actually following along with it. Usually she's not. Uh, it's an episode you can like, you can pretty much show anyone and they'll understand the story. You don't have to know like all this Trek lore or anything like that. And it, uh, you know, it does bring that tear to my eye every time, Bob. It's, it's... Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate the lack of, uh, the lack of Trek lore required for this. I, in general though, this, it, it fits that same formula of like people's favorite next generation episode is the inner light, which is very similar to this in a lot of ways. And I also don't really care for the inner light. I, I don't love these kind of like standalone episodes that are just kind of show you, show you weird things and then reset themselves. I, eh, I, I just don't love that. Uh, yeah. That I mean, so I, I would say, you know, I also don't love the kind of, kind of deep sadness of Jake's obsession, which, I don't think the writers fully understood what they were showing there. And, uh, yeah, I just don't, I just don't love this formula for Trek episodes. You see it in the inner light too. And I'm just kind of, man, that flute, whenever you see it in the background of a Star Trek shot, it does not for me. <laughs> Hot take there, Bob. Hot take. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So character of the week, Bob, I'm going to give it to Jake. <laughs> of course you are, Matt. Cause you're weak and sentimental. Yep. Right. Uh, because because uh, I'm because I'm macho and hard. Yeah. To, to, to Jakar. All right, Jakar. So, episode of the week, Bob, giving it to the visitor. No, I'm, I'm definitely giving it to the Mad Bomber. What bombs at Babylon Five, aka Convictions. All right. Well, I'm giving it to the visitor. Bob's giving it Convictions. Hard disagree. Hard disagree. <laughs> Next time Matt and Bob see each other in person, they'll uh, they'll duke it out over this yeah. one. <laughs> Bob will probably win, and I'll probably cry. So, <laughs> what, what if what if I got tethered to you in a subspace anomaly, but I just showed up every twenty years and punched you in the face? <laughs> <laughs> That's. I'd be okay with that, Bob. At least I would get to see you. Oh, I'm not, and I, and I don't think I'm smart enough to figure out how to get you back. So don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, you'd be like, Bob. I became a scientist to free you from the subspace anomaly, and I'd just be like, Matt. I literally just punch you in the face. <laughs> I'm thinking more like, Bob. I'm working on it. Okay. I combined milk with chocolate and I made chocolate milk. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> hey man, may, maybe I'll be in luck and uh, maybe uh, overcoming a subspace anomaly is very conceptually similar to editing a podcast and you'll free me like a motherfucker. There you go, Bob. That could be true. But I don't think it's that. I think it's more uh, some quantum physics there that I am not qualified I mean, to do. And I don't know enough a, people. If a novelist can understand it, Matt, you can understand it. <laughs> And that's Star Trek, folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this has been Babylon 5 versus DS9, the Galaxy's Great Podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southlands. Southland, singular, excuse me. We are a part of Uncanny Treks. Check us out for our Star Trek Picard episodes. Peace. Thanks for listening. <laughs>